You've got to be as simple as you can without being too simple. And that's hard too, to find the right balance between simplicity and hard to play against. But usually you're hard to play against because your players are good and your players are relentless, not because you try to out-trick the other team. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome former NBA head coach and current ESPN analyst, Jeff Van Gundy. Coach Van Gundy is here today to discuss innovations in the modern game, the chemical makeup of great teams, coaches, and players, inverting screens, attacking zones, and things almost go off the rails in an always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and please leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube. And subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Jeff Van Gundy. Coach, thanks so much for making time for us this morning. We're uh, really excited to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. You guys have done uh, incredibly well, and I, I find your site the best for uh, basketball breakdown stuff, so it's been really, been really enjoyable to follow you. You guys are like seasoned pros at this whole game. Yeah, yeah thank you. It means thank a lot. You. We appreciate that. Well, let's dive right in. I, I want to start with something the other night on the telecast between the Suns and the Nuggets. You were talking a little bit during the game about how the Suns have started to arrive at having a winning culture that can sustain and make the playoffs or be a, a, a contending team. And I wanted to start there about your thoughts on where that winning culture comes from, you know, is it something that's a top down thing starting, you know, at the higher levels of GMs all the way down? Is it a player driven thing or is it more on the coaching side of it? You know, what drives that winning culture? Well, I think it's uh, multifaceted. I think, you know, you have to have an owner who wants to win. Now, everybody says all the right things that they want to win. Well, of course they want to win if you can do it under on your own agenda, but I think with good owners, they place winning as a priority. And what does that mean? That means giving you the resources to try to attract the best players you can, whether it's drafting, developing, signing free agents. So I think that's number one. I think, two, it's your best players. Your best players set the tone for everything. You know, I was, I was seeing something about like someone was saying coaches his best players hard. I think there's a coachability factor, but if you have to be always on your star players to do the right thing, you're never going to have the right atmosphere and environment to be as good as you can be. So I think you have to find the right guys who are obviously are talented enough, but also driven enough, unselfish enough, coachable enough to sort of bring a group together, be good enough to finish games, but also help the others around them elevate. And then I think the third prong is, Whoever is in charge of putting your team together, knowing the whole Belichickian philosophy of we're not collecting talent, we're trying to build a team, how everything has to fit together so everybody knows their place and also can do, you know, everybody lifts everybody else up versus get in each other's way. And I think coaching then is very important, but I don't think this idea that coach is a motivator I don't see that in professional sports. I think a coach can set up a program, make demands, and then you have to decide what consequences happen when you're not getting what you need to from players. It's not like you're going to motivate them, you know, to change their personalities. So much, I think, misunderstood about motivation. Most of the motivation that truly lasts is self-motivation. So you got to find the right guys and then if you have the right guys and they're not doing what they should be doing at that time, you have to decide how you're going to deal with that. 
consequentially. So I think it's, it's not one thing, it's everything coming together. Because as you guys know, I don't care what level you play at, it's hard to win and it's easy to lose. And, you know, trying to win and win big and win consistently, you know, people act like in the NBA, it's harder to do that than at any other level. It's hard to do that at every level. Like right. I played division three, you guys played division three. Like it's brutal, brutal to win. Can you see it coming when a team's culture or, you know, from a, from afar, from where you're at within the NBA circles, can you see when there's a team is, is not going to have a winning culture for whatever reason, maybe they have players that are, are pretty good, but they're just missing that one piece. Can you feel it? Yeah. I think you can feel when things either don't fit roster wise or best players aren't committed enough or not good enough or not unselfish enough. You know, like, I don't know about you guys, but every, it, it seemed like every confrontation a, a coach ever has with a player comes down to conditioning. Are they good enough? And are then, are they unselfish enough? And do they want to, will they commit to defense? Those four areas. I mean, there's really, you know, you might turn it over or miss a screen or, you know, dumb does get you beat. So, you know, you might have, but the basic things are those. And so like when you're evaluating teams, you go look at bad teams, like either they're not good enough or they usually don't pass enough or they don't try hard enough on defense or they're fat and out of shape. Like it's, it's really not as complicated as we want to make it to be oftentimes when we try to analyze everything, because, you know, it's interesting. The Like I love your guys stuff. It is so good. The guests you have on, they're like smart, like angles. And they've named every cut in the universe, burn cuts, 45, this, that, everything's named. And guess what? At the end of the day, you can only get to that type of stuff once you got those first four things. You know, are you in shape? Do you pass? You know, do you try on defense? That whole thing. It's like those are the rock, you know, the the foundation for winning. Then you can get into the, you know, tricky X and O's, but like you don't win because of X and O's. You mentioned earlier talking about consequences. What are some of the things coaches will do for consequences to get their guys to fall in line? So much of it is you want to be as honest as you can be without being hurtful. And I have to say, like, sometimes I probably was honest and hurtful, right, with my evaluations of players or teams. And I think what you're trying to do is be direct, honest, truthful without being hurtful. I guess I think that would be the goal. But I also think, though, after that, you can't just be about telling people, like, it's one thing to say, this is what we want, this is what we're going to stand for. But when you don't stand for that, like, what are you going to do? And, and really, the only thing at your disposal as a coach is to play those people that do what you want more often than anybody else. Like, that's it. If you don't do that, then your words are hollow. And that's why it comes down to you have to have the right best players because the best players if they won't get in shape and they won't pass and they won't try on defense and you trot them out there anyway, it absolutely rips your team apart. And if you sit your best players, you don't have enough talent to win. So it's, it's not about like disciplining them. It's about committing to winning. And I think that's what you have to do. You have, you have to commit to win. You know, we always hear about, anymore. We're a player centric organization. You hear that all the time. I am so sick of that. Then why do you think you're, why would you be surprised when people are selfish then? If you're on a team and you're player centric versus team centric, you have to do what's right for the team as a head coach at every decision. It could be small, it could be big, but if you start like trying to do, if I hear player centric one more time, like you're, you're trying to do right by the player, you want to help the player, obviously, because that's going to give you your best chance of having a great team, like treat them well, coach them well, help them reach their goals. Yeah, but not at the expense of a team. Yeah. Yeah. I'll cross off all my player-centric questions. <laughs> oh, no, hold on. But hold on. I'm just can kidding. You imagine, can you imagine in Division Three, 
some some your coach saying, "Hey, you know what? We are here. We're player centric." <laughs> There's not, I, you know, because Division three coaches don't run scared of their players, right? Right. You know, there's just not as much differentiation. And, you know, Gino Oriema said it last, I think it was last year. He said too many coaches are coaching with one hand tied behind their back. And I think, yeah, you might have some conflict with players, but you're not trying to, you know, be a jerk. You're just trying to get the best out of them. And you can't give in. Like, you can compromise on certain things. Hey, you want to, you know, have chicken for pregame or do you want to have steak? Hey, that's great. Players, you can decide that. But like, are we going to run back in transition? Like what, what compromise is there? We're going to try to like fight through screens or are we going to dive when we hit a screen? This idea that, you know, you're going to compromise. I mean, you can compromise on some things that have nothing to do with winning and losing, but on those things that go directly to winning and losing, you better not compromise too much. Pivoting a little bit now, one thing we have seen a little bit more at the NBA level are coaches willing to throw a zone at teams, like thinking last year, Miami, being able to just throw a zone out there. And it seems like that might be something that happens in spots more and more from your point of view than one, I guess, is that something that you'll, you think you'll see more? And then two, how will offenses look to just attack a zone at the NBA level? When you saw Miami, right, I thought they were really impactful in that. You know, they did it a little differently. They played their more athletic, active guys in the front line, and they tried to hide guys in the back line around Autobio. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. And then they get up against the Lakers, right? What did the Lakers do? Nothing complex. Uh, get the ball to the middle to our playmaker, LeBron James or Anthony Davis. And they shredded it. And it's just very interesting, like, are you going to try to, you know, in the NBA with 24 seconds, are you going to run a lot different stuff or are you going to make modifications in what you do run while also just saying, hey, at the end of the day, let's get the ball to the middle of the floor as early in the shot clock as possible and then compact it and then play from there. Get them in closeouts, drive the closeout. Same sort of idea of attacking as you would in man-to-man. The thing that's interesting to me is, you know, what Nick Nurse has done is, you know, the box and one, triangle and two. He, he'll try anything. And, and the thing I like about what they've done in Toronto was doing that hasn't taken away from their defensive intensity in their man-to-man. I think a lot of times when you become a trickeration type of team, that it saps your fundamentals and your intensity defensively because you're always trying to trick people instead of sit down and guard them. And when you look at Toronto, that is not true. Whatever they do, they're doing with great effort, communication. And so I think that's been good. The one thing that hasn't come back that I'm a little surprised in, you know, going back to the Lakers of the 80s, no one, and Minnesota would do it uh, with Flip Saunders, 1-2-2 extended. No one's extended like in a 1-3-1 and tried to get people to play, you know, a couple passes guard to guard and then do whatever you're going to do from there. Either stay in it, go to man to man. Uh, when I worked for Coach Riley, we didn't ever use it with the Knicks, but he put it in every year. And, you know, when the ball went to the corner and then it was skipped out, we matched and played man to man. Or if the ball went into the either the high post or the low post, we went man to man. But So I'm a little surprised – you haven't seen that tried by somebody. I think that may be what's next. I'd like to go back to the offensive side when you said about getting the ball in the middle against the zone. What's kind of the important thing for that guy to do and to be successful when you get the ball in the middle? Right. So to me, it's important who you get it in there too, right? So if you watch uh, Syracuse when they play their zone, it's, it's not a 2-3. It's like a it's very high 2-2, two, two, like, and then the basket protector. Yeah. If you throw it into the middle, they don't come up. Yeah. They'll love them. If you want to turn and shoot that, feel free. And that's why it's important that it's your better player is able to, to be in there who has enough size relative to who they're playing against to score, you know, look big to big along the baseline, and then skip it out to the weak side to start you in your closeout, you know, your driving kick game. So I think having a little like 
push shot, jump shot, whatever that is, the ability to see, and then the ability, you know, to go shot, high, like, you know, your progression, shot, high, low, weak side, and do it in a manner where it's an efficient progression, I think is, you know, is critical. You mentioned how, you know, NBA teams will likely just continue to, you know, get the ball in the middle or run somewhat of their man offenses against the zone. Do you think that's something that going down to the college level and high school levels is something teams should do more anyway? I mean, so usually when a team jumps into a two, three zone, we, you know, run our zone attack plays or, or Xing and trying to get the ball in the middle rather than just continuing to run your man stuff with some adjustments. I mean, do you think that that's something that can be trickled down to other levels? Yeah, I think it should be looked at as much as possible, you know, with all the matchup principles and all that, like, I think, you know, the more you can still continue, if you believe in it, to screen on the ball. And I think with all the different switches and all that, the more you can flare, you know, and, and screen, you know, back line of the zone or flare screen in man and then step into the middle and slip. I think those things are all terrific concepts. But I do think most people who play zone in the NBA, maybe not in college, but most people who play zone in the NBA, more than them being good at it, they're hoping you're bad at it, right. attacking it. Like, and they hope to break your rhythm and flow. And I was talking um, two years ago, I worked with Mark Few. We were coaching the uh, select team as we were getting ready for the World Cup. And he told me, if you look at OER against zone versus man, there's, there's teams that have stark differences. They're like tremendous offensive team against man. And then you play a zone regardless of the quality of zone. And it's just, it's not as good. The attack isn't as good. They're not as intent on getting the ball to the basket. And, and I think that's what you're trying to do with zones a lot is just alter shot profile of the other team. Like, what are they doing? And that whole attack mentality becomes starting to play around the defense versus puncturing the defense. One of the on the same, I guess, innovation thread with the NBA doing zones or whatnot. The other thing being, you know, the modern post game where you duck it inside to a guy and then he goes to work and scores like the Shaq days. Obviously, analytics has <laughs> had a little bit to say about that sort of action. But staying on on the post, you know, we've done a lot and Pat and I lately have been on a kick of looking at teams that do a good job of posting their guards to facilitate out of that spot and run their offense from the low post rather than always trying to score it. Is that something that you've seen or your philosophy, I guess, on posting guards in general? Well, I think, you know, first of all, if you had Shaq, <laughs> the analytics would say throw it to him every time, like right, every right. single time, right? Um, I think the evolution of the post game, it is analytical, but it's also – there's very few guys who, who actually develop their game. It's not like the post game is not, it's not good or it's not efficient. It depends on who's down there, right? Yeah. There's a lot of guys anymore that they just don't have a game down there. And I think that's on us as, as coaches. I think at the minimum, you have to be able to post a mismatch in the NBA. And it doesn't have to be to force feed it immediately but you have to be able to either like duck in. I think the whole idea of post offense, it, there's too much concentration on post moves versus post depth. You know, uh, there's a big difference between a, a post catch and a paint catch. And I think the more we would emphasize the timing, the footwork and the passing required on a duck in uh, to get a paint catch is, is imperative. Right. And so I think the post game is still important. I think it's also a great place. I think you guys did um, a thing on actions with the ball going in the post. I don't know how to pronounce it. You guys, Bilbo Bill, or something yeah. like No one knows how to pronounce it. <laughs> and I don't know what it is, but I know this. When I started my international coaching and you start preparing, like I couldn't get enough of the differences in the game. I loved all the – when you threw the ball in the post, like – there was a couple guys who would try to score, but mostly it was from a position of passing. And it was so fun to, to watch the different actions 
you know, you saw the Warriors do it as a passing position. So anyway, I think the post game is still important. I think we got to teach it better, but I think you make a good point about guards. I was fortunate in my last couple of years with the Knicks, we posted our guards like all the time. It was Spreewell in Houston. Or to get fancy, we'd go that Spreewell, then Houston, and then Houston, then Spreewell, because that's what we did. Like, you know, <laughs> we'll meet you on the left block. It's going there, and it's just like that's what we're doing. And they would play off the block some, and they, you know, they had different games down there, but it was really impactful because defensively that people weren't as good. In college, I think uh, Villanova has done that exceptionally well. Uh, Jalen Brunson, when they were really good, like he was the old Mark Jackson, like back down, back down, back in, you know, surrounding him with three shooters, a guy in the dunker, and then he was so patient that they would get whatever they want. So if you have the right guy, I think it's really, really good with those strong, sturdy types who can – gain ground on every dribble and it forces defenses no matter if they want to come or not they end up coming down and it opens up so many good shots and gets you right back into the long closeout drive and kick game it's a perfect transition because i think what me and dan are also really curious about is putting your guard in the post and then sending a pick and roll his way and the tight one right along the yeah yeah it's hard it's a hard cover yeah what does this present to the defense that makes it, I, I think, pretty hard to guard and defend? Well, you guys are pretty young, but back in the days of George Carl, Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, they used to do that all the time. They used to, you know, Payton used to back in, and then, you know, they would screen for Kemp. Yeah. What do you guys call that RAM type of stuff? Uh-huh. What does that stand for? I don't, is it not an acronym, or are they just saying, like, That's the good animal, point. the RAM, just, like, running into them? I don't oh, know. Okay. Bilbo, Bilbo doesn't Bilbo stay. is a, it's a Spanish club. And I think they were the first to maybe run that action, but. Oh, I, I wish it was, I wish it was Barcelona who had yeah, yeah. came up with that. Then I would say that. <laughs> but anyway, so Gary Payton would back in and they would screen for Kemp and Kemp would come on the fly one step off the lane line. Right. And so now the roller is like right there and they would like, you know, any help by the big, you know, all Peyton would do is come off and just throw it to the, throw it up and, and Kemp would dunk it. And the rotation, like you don't even have time to rotate right. it. It's so short. And so I think what everybody came to when it was tight on the lane line defensively, or at least, you know, we came to was forgetting the matchup, anything tight on the lane. Yeah. That's a switch automatically. Same with the, like everybody had gotten into screen and, you know, when the guy caught it at the elbow and came, you know, basically yeah. elbow to elbow and that same role, that was a switch. Don Nelson, when he was in Golden State, he used to run one I thought was really interesting. He had Chris Gatling there, who was a terrific roller. And, you know, he was probably, Gatling was like the first guy with the Stoudemire, like outside turn role. And so they would catch it like, you know, a step inside the three, but in, like one step out of the corner and they would actually set the screen to the like baseline okay. side that tight to the rim. Wow. And, a guy, and the guy would come off. It was hard away and Gatlin would set it and then roll. And so he's rolling like right at the front of the rim and Hardaway would literally just come off and throw it to the rim. And he's on the run and yeah. it's such an odd angle that it sort of skewed your scheme. And so I think you have to have, again, for all these type of actions defensively, There has to be some automatics. Even if you're not a switching team, there's some things that need to be switched. And then, you know, today with the rules, scramming out of there um, is a lot easier to get a small out of, you know, harm's way down there too. So I would switch that right on the lane line type of screen. Yeah. How how much are are these teams, like you said, practicing these automatics? Because I think what makes these plays so successful is that you're not seeing them that much in practice. They're an odd angle. It's at a different spot on the court. And so how much are our teams talking about these plays at all? Are they just, you know, we get burned once we'll talk about it or, you know, what's the preparation going into this for the defense? Again, I don't think you can cover everything every day, right? So you're more prioritizing. What did the great Dick Bennett always say? um, You know, practice the things that happen the most in the game. 
right? And you think about the simplicity of that statement, right? So do you want to spend, let's say, five minutes of your hour talking about the lane line screen? Or do you want to talk about five more minutes on to, you know, spread, pick and roll? And there's not a right or wrong answer. It's just that, you know, you have a limited amount of practice time and you've got to try to improve every day. And so I think you are going to cover the things that happen the most or hurt you the most. But I do think that the more automatics you have on those, like you called it odd angle or tricky type of things, the better off you are. And again, you can't underestimate the need for intelligence, right? Like you may only see it once or twice, but the ability of, of your players who can still anticipate, you know, there are many players that are step ahead and there are a lot of players who are two steps behind. Yeah. And, you know, you, you got to have guys who are going to anticipate one step ahead. You know, one of the great things that I was told early on, dumb gets you beat and dumb is forever. <laughs> I, I haven't seen many people change my mind on that. I know dumb gets you beat uh, at every level. And the thing that makes me mad at myself still is when I get mad at a dumb player doing a dumb thing, you know, <laughs> because like that's on me. I put him in the game. I know he's going to do dumb shit. Can I, I'm sorry, <laughs> dumb stuff, dumb stuff. And like, you know, so yeah, I mean, who's the idiot? The, the dummy or the person that plays the dumb? No. Absolutely. When, when so. you talk about these, these automatics, are they like, Hey, if it's anything weird, let's just switch it. That's the automatic or is like, Hey, just rely on we're a drop or we're a hedging. So just rely on, like our base automatics. What, what do you mean in regards to automatics in these spots? Well, like I was saying, like let's say we're, um, we, we're forcing the, uh, the side pick and roll down, okay, to baseline. Mm -hmm. But tight along the lane line, you literally can't get it down. So I would say like, you know, a step off the baseline, we're going to, we're going to switch that. Okay. Or step off the lane line. The corner pick and roll. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't like downing that. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're a down team, but the ball comes to the corner. Okay. We're going to blitz that one. You know, like those type of automatics, like yeah. if this happens, this is our response. Does that mean it's perfect? Absolutely not. Are there mistakes made all the time? It's a game of mistakes. You just hope you're not making as many uh, as the other team. So, but I think the more, like to me, you've got to be as simple as you can without being too simple. And, and that's hard too, to find the right balance between simplicity and hard to play against. But usually you're hard to play against because your players are good and your players are relentless, not because you try to out trick the other team. Coach, this has been great. We're going to move into our now, uh, our start, sub, or sit segment. And so just a, a brief a recap of what it is. So we'll give you three different topics. These are all mostly basketball. You say which one you would start, which one you'd sub, and which one you would sit in the three. And then we can have a little discussion around it. And what does that mean? Like start, I like it the most. Sub is okay. Yeah. And sit stinks. Okay, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Basically, <laughs> yeah. basically one, two, and three. But Not as catchy. I like how you guys did it. Yeah. We're trying to market this thing. I cannot believe you guys haven't like been inundated. I'd be in on the ground floor sponsoring you guys, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, well, okay. Start sub or sit. I'm going to set the scene here for this one for you, yeah. but you're going to play a five on five pickup game and you've got four and there's one person you're going to pick up who's sitting on the sideline. Are you going to pick up the guy who's wearing the shooting elbow sleeve, the headband or the high knee socks? Which guy are you taking as your fifth? I'd like to sit them all and play with four, um, but um, I think the sock is sitting. I think the headband is starting, and then I guess I'm subbing the elbow guy. Yeah, but they all deserve, in their own way, they've earned the right not to get picked. 
<laughs> I, I, I like that you're not buying the elbow sleeve guy as a shooter. No, no, that's listen. <laughs> yeah, that's a, the. I used to work with this guy, and uh, his name was Gordon Chiesa, and he coached forever with the Utah Jazz. And I worked with him at Providence when we were there. And he said, never drive baseline on a guy who's wearing black socks. And I have no idea what that meant, but like, I, I, I think that's another guy who, who gets, uh, there's a guy who's wearing, you know, black socks or di- different colored socks. So uh, I'm wondering why the, so the, the headband though starts for you. Is that just because of the other two, you just don't want to play at all? Yeah, exactly. It's not that, I, but it's also like, you can think in your mind of like really good players who have played in the headband. Right. So, you know, yeah. and it's more of a stylistic thing. Yeah. The elbow sleeve is like a fake thing. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then the high socks are like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather lose with the headband guy than win with the high socks guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's definitely more intimidating. I'll yeah. say that. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Pat. <laughs> All right. Coach. Start, sub, or sit in terms of what drives innovation in in the league or in basketball. We've hit on the number of topics, but start, sub, or sit analytics, the players, or the coaches? Oh, that's good. I would say players. I would start because you're going to learn a lot by just what they do. They do some things that uh, I'll say this you learn as much from players as from a coaching standpoint, as the players learn from you, particularly the, the, the really bright guys, they'll do things technically that, you know, you might not have taught it that way, but now then you look at how they did it and you learn. So I would start the players in that regard. And then I think analytics have, has taught a lot of people, a lot of things. And yet now I think a lot of it is becoming where it's, it's very groupthink, even in analytics, like everybody, you know, everybody talks like the mid range jumper, like they're all the same, depending, Mm -hmm. no matter if they're more open or who's shooting, it's like, you know, and I don't think that's right. So I'm going to sit analytics and then I'm going to sub coaches because I would say on coaches though, they have to have the support of front office and players to try things. And I think front offices have become much more willing to try things and not blame coaches when they're not successful. I think it's critical that if you're going to be a Nick Nurse type and break out a box in one in the NBA finals, that if it goes haywire and you lose, that your management and your ownership don't point the finger of blame at the same qualities and reasons why they hired you, right? And so you don't win every game. You know, you're not going to win. You know, every decision is not going to work. Some decisions are, are, are not going to be the right ones even, and they still may work or may not work. But the only way coaches' innovation happens is with support of ownership and management and best players too. The best players, you know, can undermine your ideas if they're not fully on board. Pat and I were talking yesterday as we were preparing for this about what drives innovation. And we were discussing amongst ourselves, you know, did did Steph Curry become Steph Curry, obviously because of his ability, but then also how much of it was, you know, Kerr and the system that they created around him. Um, and sort of as the, the league continues to develop, you know, who's at the forefront of these innovative changes? But also to think about it, right? So Steph Curry is a great example, right? The year before they won the ch- their first championship, Steph Curry had a great year. Uh, he was surrounded by a much weaker roster, right? Mm-hmm. So then you put a roster in place where you have better depth, you have more options, and then you add screeners like Bogut and Green, and those guys could pass too. Neither guy is a scorer. So it's not just who you are, it's who you're playing with and also who you're playing against. And so I think what you see now with Curry, right? Like he's not playing with as much talent or skill around him. Still fine. They're doing, they're doing fine. But he's going to have some games where everything's harder too. And is he worse? No. Nope. He may even be a little bit better. 
but it's just going to be harder because, and this is where I say about systems, it's about how you build a team, building the right team and surrounding your best players with terrific complementary pieces. That's what they did in Golden State. You know who's doing that right now? Utah. Like Utah to me, they lost in the first round last year. They're a great team. Like they can legit win it if they can stay healthy. They missed Bogdanovich last year in the in the playoffs. So they didn't have that same punch at the forward spot. But right now, they can score and they're good enough defensively too. We bring up the Jazz. I know Quinn Snyder spent a lot of time in Europe as a coach before coming back to the NBA. And the Jazz, they do a lot of nice European action or things like that that they bring to the NBA. How much do these coaches look at Europe for innovation? And then at what point do they leave it? And, you know, it's a different league and they do stuff differently. Yeah, I think, again, everybody is is more open in general now, it seems to me, to more, you know, not this is how we do it in the NBA. I don't think people are like that anymore. I think people are trying to do what best fits their team and find the best ideas. It could come from the G League. It could come from overseas. And I think one thing you you notice right away when you start studying your stuff that you bring over from Europe or, you know, I, I have a great affinity for the Argentinian national team because I've studied them so much. Like what they do so well as coaches is they camouflage what their guys can't do. So they're not going to beat you off the dribble like maybe some American players where they just say, give it to him and create an angle and go. So they're always looking to try to create an advantage. And I think sometimes that drives you to come up with solutions that maybe sometimes, particularly, you know, back in the day, NBA coaches, they didn't really think about as much. It was more get the ball to my best player in his best spots. And there's still a a time for that as well. But I, I think right now you're seeing a confluence of a lot of different styles. And I think everybody has sort of opened up their eyes to there's great coaches all around the world, like really, really good coaches with good thoughts, doing good stuff. What do NBA coaches do well that you think better than other coaches in the world or what, maybe not necessarily tactically, but what is it that gives them their quality to be kind of an NBA coach? Well, I I think Pat Riley told me this once, and and I've grown to truly believe this, that NBA players don't care if you're big or small, black and white, played or not played. They care about, you know, four qualities. Are you sincere, reliable, competent, and trustworthy, right? And competence being the number one thing because they've got to believe that you can put them individually and and the team in the best possible position to win. I think maybe back at some point in the NBA, there was a big differential between coaches as far as competence. I don't think now there, there is, I think, I think everybody's really good. You know, like you can't tell me, you know, Frank Vogel's a lesser, better coach than Ty Lue and Ty Lue to Taylor Jenkins. And, you know, like, They're all good, like really good, right? So then I think it comes down to how do you interact with players? You know, how can you move them? You're not going to move them up two levels, but can you help them find their way through adversity? I think some weak-minded teams in our league, um, there's, there's a lot of give in now, like when things aren't going well for the individual or for a team. And I think the coaches I think that are going to have the most success are who are those guys who can confront and help teams deal with their given mentality and, you know, help them help themselves to strengthen mentally. I think right now that's a critical thing in the NBA. It's like there's a lot of give to teams now uh, and to individual players. You know, I love the players who, when they score, come down and say, we got to get a stop, right? Slap the floor. We got to get a stop. 
But when they throw that thing into the arena or the other teams on a, a 10-0 run and they've just missed three wide open shots in a row, is he as determined to get that stop and have the resolve. And again, no matter what level, front runners have a shelf life. They can't, you know, there's going to be adversity. I just think, you know, to go to your question, I think, I don't think any coach solves the problem by himself. There's no, you know, he, the guy's not going to come and take a mentally weak player or team and strengthen them. But he's got to try to help them help themselves. They have to be active participants in their own rescue. Great players want to be helped. They want to be coached. They want to be corrected. And you've got to sort of help them in those critical areas to have more poise and more resolve. And I don't know if that's uh, more sports psychology, you know, talking to somebody, but I think as a coach, I think that would be something I would explore because everybody's good. You know, you watch teams come out of timeouts. They all have their stuff. They're terrific. You know, I do think, you know, the one thing I'm, I'm running through a lot of things, I think it's okay. Yeah. Offensive rebounding is who is this guy? He had this uh, theory of, of tagging up. Yeah. Aaron Fern, coach Aaron, Aaron Fern. Fern. Yeah. Yeah. So, I started to think about like offensive rebound a lot more in the doing the international stuff where everybody crashes from the weak side from beyond three, like everybody's coming. Right. Yeah. It didn't really hurt them in transition because actually they then sprinted back. Right. It wasn't like, Oh, I didn't get the offensive rebound. Now I'll go on my dog trot back. Like we see a lot of players in the NBA do, but I love the idea of how can you offensive rebound still get back because I know offensive rebounding is more important in the playoffs than it is in the regular season, right? Yeah. And that whole tagging up, is that what it was called? Yeah, again? tagging, tagging up. up. Yeah, yep. You no, know, you go top side and try to get it, you know. So I, I think I think offensive rebounding, that's something I've thought a lot about, you know. I don't yeah. know if that's, again, innovation or – but just thinking about how you want to – proceed in that area. I, I'm, I think that's going to be one that a lot of NBA coaches think about because if you will look at the NBA offensive rebounding percentages, they have dropped dramatically, like right off the cliff. And is there a way to both get back and get on the board in a playoff series? Yeah. And I mean, I know with Aaron Fern and this tagging up, his philosophy too is that if everyone's going to the rebound, then so is the other team because they're trying to box you out, which is also then, you know, they're not, they're not going to be leaking out if they know everyone's going to rebound. That's an interesting one too, Patrick, because I was thinking like, you know, Don Nelson, his whole thing was always, you know, if you contest a three above the free throw line, you're gone. Right. Yeah. You know, or basically any three you were gone. And I always did contest and come back. Right. We're going to gain rebound with all five. I wonder if that's right. You know, the more I watch, like particularly with individual players, like, you know, you watch Anthony Davis when he contests, he never comes back. He leaks out. And that's a that's a quick strike over the top, big target. And I got to think that give pays off more dividends. I think it can be individual. I, I'm, I'm interested in all of that. So like, OK, you can go to the board as a shooter. I'm Anthony Davis. Go ahead. You tag me up, and I tell you what, if we get it, I'm a big target. We're going to score at the other end. No. I, I think those those individual, like, I think NBA teams do this well. Like, you know, it can be individualistic in a lot of things where we might say close out, you know, inside foot up, right? Some guys, just like they're better with one, you know, their strong hand, they have a strong foot, and they're – you know, does it really matter which foot's up if they're square on the ball and they can keep the ball in front of them? You know, things like that, I think you have to be, you know, open to. And so anyway, I, but I do like that whole tagging up. The other one, I, I always question myself, why do we allow the ball in as easily? Like getting the ball inbound on a side out of bounds against Argentina, it was literally impossible. Like they made every catch hard. 
Uh, so I was thinking about that. Not that you're going to try to make every catch impossible, but can you turn it up at a certain time and keep the ball out of the best player's hands? And after a make, you know, like if you tag up, I'm not going to let the ball get outletted to a certain guy. Yeah, like, right. like Steve Nash, we tried that, but because it wasn't a habit when we were playing the seven seconds or less sons, we tried that. But because we didn't do it all the time, I thought it had minimal success. But I do believe if you have a dominant point guard, I think there's great purpose to tagging up and then not letting the ball to a certain guy, or at least make him come back to the ball. To that point, you know, I've noticed with a lot of the European teams, after a timeout, you know, they're going to say, hey, let's press, let's make it hard for their point guard to get the ball in because they just talked about a play for 60 seconds. So at least make them run six, eight seconds trying to get it to the point guard. And then maybe he gets it and they're on the wrong side of the floor, or, you know, not where. So he's got to like get it to the right side so they can start like, okay, now we can get into our play. And you've, you know, you didn't get a turnover, but you've wasted eight, 10 seconds of them trying to hunt for a good shot. And I think stuff like that is a big difference. I agree with that. And I, I like the idea, even t- when you're saying timeouts, why do we have them? <laughs> like, why are they allowed? <laughs> So a team's on a 10-0 run. Well, get a basket. Like, I hate timeouts in every sport. And halftime, like, what's that all about? Why can't we just play four quarters? I know it's all about money, right? But yeah. can we just, like, like, make money some other way? Can we just keep the game going a little bit more? And I think, I don't know about in, in Europe with you guys or Dan with you guys, but, like, I watch teams all the time come out of halftime and they're sleepwalking. Yeah. And it's time and time again. Why do we keep doing the same thing over and over and not getting good results? Like teams warm up. They're in a full sweat before a game. They come out there 15 minutes before. They're, and then at halftime, they come out with like two minutes on the clock, yeah. jack a couple shots, totally cold. Why is that like with all the trainers we have in the NBA and all that, why do we allow that type of yeah. mentality? I, I, I don't understand – why we start a game so differently than we start a half. Why do we even go in? Like everybody says halftime adjustments. Come on, man. If you wait to halftime to adjust, you're, you stink as a coach. You mean to tell me you're getting beat on a pick and roll like five straight times and you're, you're going to say, you know, with 10 minutes to go in the first half, hey, we'll get to that at halftime. We'll adjust about five at halftime. You know, I mean, what, what are we talking about? Like, let's just call it a bathroom break. Go in, you know, go to the bathroom, get a drink. These players now, they're checking their phones to make sure, you know, whatever. I don't know what they'd be checking their phones for at that point, but whatever they check their phones for. And then let's come out and get a legit warm-up. And we'll have a timeout at the halftime. I mean, like, right before we go, I got to correct, you know, got to do better at this and this. But I don't understand players who get warm before the game and then at halftime they sit for 15 minutes and then sort of ease their way into the second half. Right. (laughs) Coach, you say get rid of timeouts. Is this something that you say now as more on the commentating end or when you were a coach, were you still for getting rid of timeouts and and these halftimes? Well, I think the NBA keeps cutting back to timeouts. But I would love to see continuous play yeah. as a broadcaster, as a fan, and really as a coach. Isn't that the testament? Like, work your way out of a bad situation. I hate this. Oh, he took a t- timeout to break, you know, to break the momentum. Why do we want the momentum, bro? Like, figure it out. Get a basket. Get fouled. Like, why do you need a, a, a break? Like, I like the advancement in the NBA. I don't know why college basketball doesn't have it. It's so stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the women's side does have it, but yeah. men's, oh, no, we're not going to do that. But so I, I like the idea of advancements. Like, you know, at the – you take a timeout, you can advance it up, but just walk up the floor, have your place. Like, you yeah. know, you don't – why do we have to come over to the side? Like, I don't get <laughs> I that. It's, it's terrible. Uh, it's terrible. <laughs> Coach, has been great. Pat, I think we're we're still playing yeah, yeah, start, sub, sit somewhere sub, in here, sit. right? Yeah. This has been great, though. <laughs> Coach, we'll <laughs> – because speaking of, because we got a we got a couple of good scenarios yeah, for go you ahead. here. Start sub sit for you now. These are going to be 
late game pick and roll coverage scenarios for you. Okay. So late game, you're tied. So you got to get a stop basically. So on the top pick and roll, start, sub, or sit, switching it, trapping it, or hedge and recover. Hedge is definitely sitting for eternity. <laughs> okay. 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 Yeah, that, that's over. Um, and then it, it really would depend who to start and who to sub on who I have and who the, who's running the pick and roll, right? So like a Luka Doncic, I'm going to switch, right? LeBron, switch. Now, that doesn't mean that you have an advantage doing that. I think it's just less bad than the other ones, right? So I probably would say against, you know, bigger wings like that, switch. And against smaller, you know, maybe point guards, I wouldn't even say trap. I would say impact the ball, you know, like come up hard and aggressive, one slide and then out. That would be my uh, my sub. Okay. You kind of answered this for me too, but Pat and I were talking yesterday. So last NBA finals, you know, you could tell the Lakers were time and time again, trying to put Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero into a, a late pick and roll with LeBron. And, you know, a lot of times Robinson and Hero are trying to do what you just said, really quick show out and then keep Jimmy Butler basically guarding LeBron. And I guess that was a little bit of maybe the hedge and recover thinking something like that, as opposed to the trap. Yeah. You know, th- those are really hard when you're, when the perimeter, you know, they used to do it to Steph Curry, yeah. you know, with LeBron too, you know, like, let's face it. When, when LeBron's involved, everything becomes hard, you know, <laughs> right. it's all, yeah. it's all personnel based, but I think too, like the way I would see that is I would probably try to switch that and then come and somehow, you know, then kick the guy out somehow, like come and double him with Robinson leaving, you know, whatever it may be. But I don't think I, I think the show, particularly with all the, if I see one more NBA player, like fooled by like the Clay Thompson sprint up, I think you guys call it a ghost, you know, and like, hello, has he ever stopped and set a screen? No. So why are we like, why are we confused? Why is this giving us a problem? Just run with him. There's no switch. Stay square on the ball, guard the ball. Like the rule should be the faster the guy is running, the less likely he is to stop and set a screen. Right. So don't be confused. All the repetitions you get, all the games you can watch on TV and you don't know Clay Thompson has never set a screen on the ball ever in his whole life. Like he runs fast and he slips out, goes out, whatever you want to call it. And then I hate when the two defenders, after you give up a three to either Curry or Thompson, they're looking at each other. And I was taught this when the hands go up like this, that's the ultimate blame game, right? Like that's all. Yeah. No, you're an idiot. Like you didn't know that like Thompson is going to slip out. So yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Coach, getting back to your original answer, when you said like someone on LeBron, uh, you you would switch. I'm assuming is this because of the size? You're worried that if you trap, he's seeing over it? Or is it because it's still a mismatch, but he doesn't have the speed to maybe come off and just blow by the switch? I just think James is, I mean, he's great at so many things, but his greatest strength is his vision, anticipation, passing, and size, all those things. So every time, even for a moment, there's two on the ball, it's problematic. So I would switch every time James set a screen and or had a screen set for him. That would just be my my James defense, never two on the ball, ever. All right, Coach, my last one. Start, sub, sit. In terms of you can have any type of this, this type of roller. You can have a pick and pop man, a rim roller, or someone who's good at short rolling and playing out of the, the short roll? Well, I think rolling in general, short or what do you guys call that over long? Yeah, you know? rim roll. Yeah. Like the speed roll, like that, that puts a lot of pressure. That's a hard one. It's hard to sit anybody of those three because to me, the really good teams have all three of those in some form or fashion. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, my thing would be I'm starting all three. <laughs> okay. 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 And I'm going to have, because I need all three. Like if you look at the pick and roll games that don't have all the answers, I guarantee you they're missing one of those. So, and or the ball handler is not good enough. But if the ball handler is good enough, you need all three of those. It doesn't have to be, hopefully it's all the same guy, but it most likely is not. But you have to be able to have your primary ball handler. They have to have on your team, you have to have where you can put maximum pressure on the defense, having all three. Like if I look at the Knicks, right? I'm a big Knicks fan because I'm a big uh, Thibodeau fan. They uh, like Mitchell Robinson is great on the speed roll, right? Probably a little bit lesser on the short roll. And, you know, he doesn't shoot the pick and pop at all. You know, Vucevic for Orlando shoots the pick and pop. Great on the short roll. Probably not as impactful on the speed roll because of that's just not his, his game. So I think when you're talking about teams, right, you have to try to find – in a bench player, an element that of all three of those roles that maybe your starter doesn't have Mm -hmm. so that for any individual team, you can like try to take advantage of what they don't do well defensively. To follow it up then, I guess, if you're defending a team that can do all three well, what's stressing you the most as a coach then if you got to face all three? I think the short role, you know, like it's really, really puts – so much pressure when that guy's a decision maker of he can catch and make a play to the rim. He can catch and start touching it out where they've got you scrambled. So I think the short roll, and I think obviously the, the speed roll where they're just throwing it up for, you know, a dump. Yeah. I would always say the the pick and pop I'm less concerned about in that if it's giving me like incredible problems, I can veer back off the ball handler and take in, I could straight switch it. Or I just, you know, frankly, if the ball handler is so good and they throw it back above the break, you know, maybe it's a 38% shot. Mm-hmm. But I know those other ones are killers. So I would say I would hope they would pop. Okay. Well, coach, you're off the start sub or sit hot seat. I didn't even play by the rules. <laughs> like I just made up my whole new rules. Like, you know, <laughs> disregarding the rules of the game <laughs> you know, i just started off yeah. privilege yeah. of the guest yeah, yeah. yeah right. well loved it thank you for that uh that was a lot of fun and closing question for you interested to hear what you think one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach and a broadcaster is well i would say this from a coaching standpoint investing in your own uh, coaching confidence. And you only get confidence through preparation and successful repetition. And the more you can study and think and plan ahead for how you want to handle things, I think investing in yourself from a confidence standpoint and how you're going to gain that coaching confidence. And then as I've gotten older, I wish I had a greater appreciation when I was younger for just the privilege it is to coach. And I don't care what level that is, but to have people have an opportunity to lead people, hopefully in a positive way, not only for their own careers, you know, we, we get jaded, you know, a career is a, you know, is a short time uh, for a player, but, you know, I was a high school coach. You know, I love that. I, I still am in contact with six or seven of those 12 guys that I coached in high school way, way back. And, uh, the same with some of the guys I've coached in the NBA. Like, you're not close with everybody, but, you know, some you have just a, a bond with. So I guess I wish I would have been more appreciative of that and not just be as, you know, focused on, you know, if we won or lost. And then the, I think the final one on that is, you know, criticism. Everybody hates the teacher now and everybody hates the coach. Like, that's just something you either accept or you shouldn't get into it. Little Johnny is never wrong. Little Johnny never sucks. Okay. Uh, Now we know he does, but parentally, for whatever reason, parents are more blind than they've ever been toward their own. 
And I just think you have to understand the media will always side with management and players. They will. That's just what they do. That's how they get their information, right? They will always blame the coach first. So parents, fans, they'll always start with the coaches, right? It's just, and I think you have to steel yourself to that criticism. You have to be okay with that criticism. You can't be always poor me. I'm underappreciated. Yes. If you go into coaching, you go into teaching, which coaching is, you will be underappreciated. And I think having the right mentality in that area bodes then well for you retaining your coaching confidence through hard work and preparation, even when those around you are critical of every decision, even though they have no knowledge. All right. And, and then the, the real privilege it is to lead. I, I think those three things are critical. Really well said. Coach, thank you once again for your thoughts today and for your time with us. You're, you're welcome back anytime. Yeah. Thank you, coach. This is a, this was a, a high for us. So we're, we're really, really appreciative. You spending some time with us this, uh, this morning for you. Yeah. Well, b- hanging out with division three guys, is yeah. always good. And also that us teammates are doing something together. Those bonds that I was talking about with yeah. the players that you guys still have with each other. That's great stuff. And like I said before, not blowing smoke, you guys are doing great, great work. And as a, as a young coach, if I was a young coach right now, I would be, you know, hungry for all the information you're providing. Not that you can do everything that you throw out there, nor should you try, but that you have your eyes open to all the different ways people try to coach their teams well. And so, you know, you guys are not only doing doing it well, but you're doing a service that is high, high level and very beneficial to coaches, young and old. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for further insights on this podcast. Have a great week, Coach, and, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.